Well, hey, Heritage family, how we doing? That's good. So glad to be with each one of you here today, whether you're tuning in, watching online. Thanks for tuning in with us. Whether you're there at Bettendorf, glad to be with you. If you're here at Rock Island, always glad to be with my Rock Island family and brothers at Kiwani. Love you. So thankful for the ways that you've invested into us as a church and just want to say thanks again for the beautiful, amazing artwork that you spent time on. Uh, This is one of those. Let's just give them a good hand again for all that they've done. Uh, Know that that artwork has taken lots of time and investment and work to make those panels come together. And so just looking at each week as we see just the great artwork that those guys have made, I just am continually amazed at the talent and the ways that they invest into us as a church. And I say that just to kind of continue to, to help us understand the ways that the men there Um, continues to encourage us as a church. We have men that go down each and every week to serve alongside of those guys and have worship service with them, and they encourage us in such huge and massive ways. And I just want to share a quick story with you about one of those ways that they have done that. I was was at Kiwani a couple of weeks ago, and um, we were doing worship and our message and our small group time, which is our kind of normal pattern and was sitting with the small group of guys that I was with, and we were just sharing about what was going on in our lives as we were sharing about prayer requests and those types of things. And uh, I was just sharing about the kind of stuff that was going on in the Abel household in our life and our journey. And many of you know that we're on this adoption journey. We've been trying to adopt this little girl from Haiti for uh, quite some time now, and so we've been on that. And we're really, really close to being able to bring her home. And we were just like, there's just these things that just haven't moved yet. And so in the end of our small group time, uh, one of the inmates there was praying for everybody and then took specific time to pray for me and my family specifically about that situation. And was just praying that there would be victory, that there would be breakthrough, and that it would happen quick and soon. And wouldn't you know it, out of that week in there, we were able to get Antonisa's passport, which is awesome. That's her name. Sorry if you don't know. But so we were able to get her passport, which was awesome. That was one of the main big things that we needed. And because of that, uh, the process was able to keep moving forward. And so either at the end of this week or very early next week, we're going to be traveling to go and get her and bring her home. So we are we're obviously very, very excited about that, and uh, we'll be gone for a little bit after that, so just uh, bear with us. You have a great staff that's going to continue to love on all of you here, uh, but uh, that's what's going on in the Able kind of family, and it's really just the beginning of the journey. A lot of you have been along with us in this years-long journey that we've been on, but it really is just the starting point. Bringing her home is really a beginning uh, to just a whole new thing of what's going to be going on in the life of the Able household. So continue to cover your prayers for safety as we go and travel, but even as we come back and just begin to acclimate to what the new family dynamics look like. I uh, would appreciate that. So we're uh, going to continue along in this parables journey. I'm going to jump back into that. Uh, first week, Sean set it up, kind of started us all together. And then last week, Josh did a great job of pinch hitting for Justin, and uh, his pinch hitting was much better than St. Louis Cardinals. That's all I got to say, Okay. <laughs> 
That's right. He's a Cardinals fan. I just got to get that dig in for him. Uh, and uh, so you can watch either of those messages, past, uh, those, those past messages online if you want to. Um, and uh, as way of just update as well, Justin is doing well. He was back to work last week. And so those of you there at Bettendorf, you know he's there. But yep, we're happy that he's back too. So that is good. And, uh, but I'm, I'm really excited uh, to jump into these couple of parables here today, because uh, these are described by some as the gospel within the gospel. And these parables really distill the essence of the good news that Jesus gave to each one of us. As we started this series, even from, from day one, uh, a couple weeks ago, we used this definition of a parable. It's a, a simple story with a spiritual truth, right? It's that simple story with a spiritual truth. Some of these stories, these parables are easy to understand. Some are a little more nuanced. Some of them Jesus explains right after, and some of them he waits and tells his disciples, and some of them are just kind of left hanging, and we interpret them as we do. And so there's a number of different ways those parables are used, but they all kind of have that same base starting point of just being that simple story with a spiritual truth and application for us. So at face value, value, these two parables today are pretty straightforward. Jesus gives the explanation at the end. Uh, and so in one sense, we really could just open the word together. We could read these two parables and kind of continue on our way because they have such great clear truth to them to begin. But I have to tell you, the more that I personally walked through these parables, the more that I spent time and dug into them and sat with Holy Spirit and said, what do you want to speak to me? And what do you want to speak to us as a church? The more that I was convicted, the more challenged that I became by what I found. Which is one I think the joys of how God works. They're the things that you know and you understand. But if you open your mind and say, God, what else do you want to show and teach me? There are immeasurable depths, immeasurable truths that we can continue to dig in and to find. So we're going to be jumping in to a little bit of, of that here today. So at the beginning of this journey, I found that that was true. This, this parable is a simple story with a spiritual truth. But the reality is just because that it's simple doesn't mean that it's easy. Simple and easy are not the exact same thing. You can understand, oh, that's a simple idea, but to really live that out in an everyday, day-to-day, 365, seven days a week life can be difficult. And so uh, that's really what kind of happens here in this parable. Simple, clear, but the implications of it are huge. So let's take a moment, we're going to read our two parables here together. They'll be on the screen, it's in your note guide as well, or you can open to Luke 15. And uh, so let's read this here. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? 
And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. And in the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. So now this is a pretty straightforward kind of couple of parables, right? And so a common tool that we have been using over these past couple of weeks and really that you can use any time that you open the word and scripture for yourself is this idea of understanding how to observe, interpret, and then apply. Observe, see what's really happening, interpret, kind of really start to dive into why that is happening and then applying it into your own life. So let me make just a few quick observations as we begin into these couple of parables. First is that I see that the word sinner is used four separate times and the word repentance or repent is used four times as well. And when something is repeated that often in a chunk of scripture, it's something you should take notice of. And we'll, we'll get more to this later, but the word sinner here is for those with the stigma of living beyond the Old Testament law. I know sometimes we hear the word sinner and we kind of like get it kind of starts rubbing us the wrong way. But these people may or may not have necessarily been sinners, but they had that kind of mark or stigma of being a sinner, okay? And it's not really out of a, a personal journey or even out of maybe the right place of evaluation. And even in my text that as, as I was studying it, they put sinner kind of in quotations. You know, Luke said it, like there were sinners and tax collectors gathered. So it has this kind of air of like not exactly sure what all is happening with all of the people there. But Luke seems to be making a really pretty big deal about the fact that there were sinners, quote unquote, are there in attendance and that sinners also need repentance. It's the two things that are kind of juxtaposed there. So the next observation is that these parables are, are seemingly in response to the mutterings of the Pharisees. As we read, it said, you know, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around Jesus to hear him, but the Pharisees and teachers of the law, they muttered, and this man, he welcomes sinners, he eats with them. And so we can observe these things, we can observe this tension, but how do we start to interpret this tension? And so we ask a few questions and how I try to do this best is I try to like put myself as much as I can within the actual story. If I was a, a person sitting there or standing in that moment, watching, seeing what was happening, hearing and feeling the tension that was there. And so I just start asking a few questions. First was why were the sinners and the tax collectors gathered there? Why does Luke make a point of mentioning it? There's a number of other parables in Luke where Jesus just kind of starts into a parable or he says it with different people around, but Luke makes a specific mention that there are sinners and tax collectors here gathered for this. We have to remember a few things about the gospel of Luke as a whole for the context of this. Each of the gospels is written for different audiences. Luke is written primarily to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. And so the Gentiles are not really used, are not brought up hearing the stories that the Jews likely did. So they didn't hear about the rescue from Egypt or the Ten Commandments. They didn't hear about the parting of the Red Sea or David and Goliath. And they also weren't likely living in a place of expectation for a savior or a Messiah. They weren't looking for that. So why gather around Jesus? 
Now, it's also worth noting that the Gentile audience that was there and that was reading this lived in, in a Hellenistic culture, okay? And this is a, a general term for the prevailing philosophy at the time. And I'm not going to get deep into the philosophy because I want you guys to stay awake, okay? So we're not going to jump into that here. But just for cliff notes, basically, it was a, the Hellenistic culture was one that was moving towards an understanding of the individual apart from the group, so back in that time, people were really defined by the family group that they were connected with or the trade that they were connected with or the region, the area that they were around. But when Rome came in and kind of wiped a lot of that clean, they weren't really connected that way anymore. They were really just a Roman citizen. They were one of many. And so the questions that they were starting to ask and the things that they were trying to process in life were just very different. Instead of asking, how does this affect we and us as a group? It's, what does this mean for me and who am I? And then that second question was, because Rome is doing all this stuff, it's this big kind of giant machine, does what I do and how I even live even matter? So this is Luke's audience. This is a group of people who are looking to understand who they are as people and then how to live under this really kind of oppressive Roman government, close to this exclusive kind of Jewish religious system that they weren't really sure how to interact with. So this is the mindset of people reading Luke, but also the people who are gathering around to hear Jesus. Something about who Jesus was brought them in to him again and again. There was something that was irresistible about who Jesus was. So that gives us the, the context, the cultural understanding of what was happening in that space, but it still doesn't answer fully the question of why were they gathered? The Pharisees and the teachers of the law kind of give us a clue into that answer. He says, they say that he welcomes sinners and eats with them. So as you read through Luke, if you take time to read through that whole book, you'll see that many times Jesus has seen, was seen and scolded for welcoming and eating with sinners and the very despised tax collectors. Now, you don't have to turn there, but in Luke 5, Jesus tells a tax collector named Levi to get up from his post and to leave what he was doing and to follow him. And the Pharisees and teachers of the law, they complained to Jesus' disciples. Why do you eat and drink with these tax collectors and sinners? And then a few chapters later, Jesus is at dinner with a Pharisee and a woman comes into the dining room, which is already kind of crazy in itself, but then falls to Jesus' feet, is crying, wipes his feet with her tears and her hair, and then pours perfume on his feet. And the Pharisee's response is that he mutters, if Jesus was truly a prophet, then he would know that this woman is a sinner. Then you can go even past our parables today, later in Luke, to the story of Zacchaeus. And if you've been around church or grew up singing some of those little Bible songs, you know Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Perfect, exactly. You remember the song, right? Wee little man and wee little man was he. So he's a rather short little tax collector who climbed up in this tree to be able to get a view of Jesus as he's walking by. And out of the midst of all of the crowd, Jesus sees Zacchaeus and says, come on down. I'm going to your house today and we're gonna eat a meal together. 
the people see this and they mutter to themselves, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. So Jesus has this, this habit of being and walking with sinners and not just, just being and kind of around them, but eating with them, which is just about, about the most personal thing that you can do because this was true then, this is also true today as well, that who you invite to the table shows the boundaries of your relationships those you're willing to sit at a table with, to share a meal with, to talk and have a conversation with, to invite into your home to know what you do and how your family works, those you're willing to bring into that space shows the boundaries of your relationships, how far you're willing to go to invite others in. So then you have our parables for today. The tax collectors and the sinners are gathered around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they're, they're muttering, they're grumbling to each other. This man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. And now this, this word here for grumbling is way more than just kind of simply muttering under one's breath. We, we hear grumbling, we think they're just going, oh, you shouldn't do this, blah, blah, blah. That's what we feel like it, it should be. But the word literally here, is used of many indignantly complaining to a whole crowd. So this is more than just one Pharisee, this is many indignantly complaining. And indignant is like, they got something really up there ticked about what's going on in that space. Their heart is upset about what is happening. And so they're not complaining just to themselves, they're complaining all around to this crowd. So you have these two large groups of people having this conversation. You have one group who's with Jesus and wanting to hear what Jesus has to say, and then you have this other who's not simply just kind of muttering in the background and in the shadows, but trying to stir up the crowd in this subversive way, saying he, he welcomes sinners. Do you know that he actually, he eats with them too, invites them into the house. I can't believe that he does that. Did you see who was here? Did you see that guy? Do you know what he has done? And so if you put yourself in the situation here, try and place yourself in the midst of this scripture, the situation is tense. It is charged emotionally. Because the Pharisees aren't, aren't hiding their disgust. They're making sure that the sinners and the tax collectors hear their mutterings. Now, my, my boys just wrapped up Little League for the season a couple of weeks ago. And uh, most of you have seen Little League or have had kids or you participated in the league. And so you know what Little League baseball is all about, right? Uh, you have kids who are you know, trying to figure out and understand how to play the game of baseball. And so you cheer super loud when they get their hit. And then you continue to try to encourage them to throw to first base and get it to the first baseman and not overthrow the first baseman. And then when they miss the first baseman, not to... Just get it back to the pitcher. Get it back to the pitcher, please. And they just keep throwing it all over the place until people just keep running. And it's a great time and everybody has fun. And uh, it's a blast. Uh, but, but you've all seen kind of what baseball looks like, how that all works. There's a playing field and there's kids that are playing or people who are playing the game and it's controlled by an umpire who sits behind home plate. And sometimes there's multiple umpires, but usually there's for sure the one that's sitting behind home plate controlling everything that's happening on the field. 
And then you have a fence or some type of barrier. And behind that barrier is a whole bunch of family and friends and caregivers and those who are just there to watch the game. And so this happens a lot in the games that we were at where you have, you know, the umpire makes a call and sometimes parents or others maybe disagree with that call. Not really sure exactly if that's how they would make that call. Uh, that might be a strike or no way that was a strike, or I think that kid actually shouldn't be able to run there. And so you, they will kind of discuss this seemingly a bit to themselves. But if the game continues long enough, or if there's enough weight behind the game, or if the parent has enough ire behind what they're wanting to say, they start to rally others to their cause, speak a little louder about what's going on. And then sometimes you have lots of parents and lots of caregivers and lots of people trying to help the umpire understand how this game should be played. And I always felt really bad and kind of, it was a tense situation for me. I'm a conflict averse person, so I don't really enjoy those types of moments because you have, you know, an umpire that's usually a 12 or 13 year old boy or girl trying to deal with, you know, all of these parents. And it's just not a great situation. And so it's hard, it's difficult. And, and I know that this analogy, it's gonna break, it breaks down pretty quick, but it's pretty similar to what is happening in this space with the Pharisees, what the teachers of the law were doing. It was more than just kind of saying, uh, that's a strike, I think. They were saying way more and trying to get a whole lot of people riled up about what was actually happening in the space. They were so displeased what was going on that they were just spoke up and trying to get others to join their cause. And let's remind ourselves what the Pharisees' cause really was all about. They were thinking that they were doing God's work and that they were the religious leaders who lived with this desire to be known as the religious authority, that they were right, they understood what God wanted, and so they wanted others to understand what they knew. They had this high concern for outward recognition and honor, that people would see them for being correct and right and pure. And they emphasized the legalistic minutia of the law from the Old Testament. So they had this way of life that not only just followed the laws of the Old Testament, which were long and lengthy, but they added extra safeguards, read more rules that kept you from even coming close to breaking the law. Kind of like knowing that the speed limit is like 55 miles an hour, but you only buy a car that can go 40. You know, like you're just, you're staying far enough away from 55 because like you just want to be that safe and that careful. So this is how the Pharisees functioned. And so the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they, they saw these sinners, these people who lived beyond the law. And some of these people didn't even have a clue that the law even existed, but yet they tried to hold them to this standard. And so the Pharisees even had a special name for those who didn't keep the law or understand what the law was. They called them the people of the land. And these sinners, these people of the land, you're not supposed to marry them. You don't loan money to them. You don't trust them with anything important. You don't even accompany them on a journey. Anything that came close to even looking them in the eye would be seen as an infraction upon the Pharisees' purity and right standing with God. So they didn't even worry or necessarily concern themselves about the salvation of those people, but rather kind of secretly delighted in the notion that God was going to destroy the impure and lawless sinner. So can you imagine now how 
those who were with Jesus trying to listen to him felt. The religious elite standing behind you talking about the terrible things that you have done, whether you've done those or not, and why Jesus would find himself with the likes of you. How crushing would that feel? How judged would you feel? So this, this is the stage. This is the powder keg of emotions and tension that Jesus finds himself in. The religious elitist versus the downtrodden sinner. But Jesus, Jesus not only sees these quote-unquote sinners, but he welcomes them to his table, speaking their names inviting them in, not just here in this moment, but over and over and over through the Gospels. And the Pharisees, who are just at this complete loss for how Jesus can be around those who are so far from keeping the law, so much that it continues just to stir this question and anger in them. In that space, then Jesus tells them all these two parables. Basically, it's the same, same general story two times in a row. And really, if you keep reading, it's the same story three times in a row. But we're going to be doing The Lost Son a little bit later in the series. And just as a reminder, any time that something is repeated in the Bible, you say it once or say it a second time, it's something worth paying attention to. Now, if it's said three times, then it's something that we're even held more accountable to. So there's this man with 100 sheep, right? He loses one of them, leaves those 99, and goes to find the sheep in the wilderness. And then he finds the sheep, picks up the sheep, puts it on his shoulders, and walks it back, and invites everybody to celebrate with him because he has found his lost sheep. And heaven rejoices in the same over one who's repentant than the 99 who don't need to repent. And then a woman, in a similar way, has 10 coins. She loses one. She searches the house and the coin, finds the coin and invites all to her place to celebrate with her. In the same way, heaven rejoices over one sinner who repents. Now, there's a ton to unpack in each of these little parables. Why the example of sheep and shepherd and what did that mean culturally and how did that connect for people? Why the woman in 10 coins? Why not a man in 10 coins or five coins or three coins? There's so much that I can't really get into all of the individual details. We could do a whole series on just these for a while. But what I want us to see is there are multiple levels that Jesus is speaking to right here. Now, the first is obvious. It's what we all kind of see and read that Lost is found, and people rejoice when the lost thing is found, and a sinner repents, and heaven rejoices. We like the clarity that's there. It's pretty straightforward, and Jesus explains it at the end, so yay. But there's another level that I want us to really dig into. And because we are New Testament people, we are used to hearing the stories of Jesus. We've opened up the word a whole lot, and so we kind of can miss sometimes a couple of things. You have to remember that this audience didn't really have the whole Bible. They didn't even have a, a, an Old Testament really to even look at or to read. They didn't have the context that we have as we read and as we hear these parables. Because Jesus was trying to make a point about repentance and what that truly means and meant for all of those who were there. And the Pharisees, they wanted the sinners to repent. 
and so did Jesus. They just had very differing opinions about what repentance equaled. See, the Pharisees, they wanted the sinners to repent. They wanted the people to jump into the standards of purity that they lived by. They wanted them to drive the car that only went 40 miles an hour when the speed limit is 55. They wanted them to subscribe to this religious system. They wanted outward behavior to match what they wanted it to look like, to live according to these Old Testament laws. They were looking really for this new behavior. You follow our rules, you do these things, and then you will be accepted. And this is what repentance really looks like, is to do rules, is to behave a specific way. And now Jesus, he wanted sinners to repent as well, but he wanted them to follow him and his way. The word he used for repent was metanoia, meaning to change one's mind to how you see and how you respond to life in a whole entire different way. He was inviting them to see life in a new way and to live from a changed internal, inside life. See, he was inviting them into a new belief, not a behavior not with rules and stipulations, but of a life that was free because it flowed out of a new mind. And we know, looking forward, because we understand the whole picture, that Jesus is the one who would eventually die to make that whole complete picture possible. And so these, we see that these parables are not so much about the types of people but they're about the types of responses. They're not so much about the types of people, the shepherd, the woman, the crowds that were gathered to party. They were about the types of responses to what was happening there. The reason Jesus basically told the story, same story three times is because he's wanting to communicate very, very clearly that no matter what is lost, it is worth looking for and it was worth rejoicing over. Who the sheep or the coin is, is not the point of these parables. It is the state of the sheep and the coin that necessitate a response from us. See, because a sheep is still a sheep if it wanders. A coin, it still has value even when it falls to the floor. And sneak peek ahead, a son is still a son even if he runs away. The point of the parable is not about the animal or the object or the person. It's the fact that it was lost that is the key. That is what got the shepherd moving. That's what inspired the woman to light the lamp and to sweep her floors. It wasn't, oh, that was my favorite sheep. He's going, I should probably go chase it. Or that was my favorite coin. No, those were one of many. The sheep probably really didn't understand that it was lost. Sheep are not very smart people. I don't know if you realize that. They just kind of wander around. It's what they do. They look for food and that's it. So it just wandered away. There's nothing different about it than the rest of the other sheep. It just happened to wander. But the shepherd sought after it because it was lost. The coin, 
didn't choose anything. It can't think. It just happened to get lost. But the woman sought after it, went to find it because it was lost. So bottom line here, Jesus is saying that there are those that are lost. There are those that wander. Some understand that they have wandered. Others have no idea that they are wandering, but that doesn't change their value of who they are. No matter how they got there, they are worth finding and they're worth rejoicing over. So Jesus was communicating to these Pharisees, these religious elite, that these sinners, quote unquote, that you're looking down on, they are just lost people. And we should be looking for them and helping them find true repentance. And so, yes, I will sit with them. I will eat with them. I will call them by name. I will invite them into relationship with me because they are worth it. They are worthy. They are children of God. And so are you. And in the same breath, saying the same stories, Jesus was saying to all that gathered to listen that you are worthy. You are not second class. You don't have to understand all of these rules that they say you should understand. You don't even have to know what the Old Testament law says. I'm inviting you to see that you are lost, but that I see you. I will chase after you. I will not scold you. I will not place a whole bunch of rules on you. I will eat with you and I will call you by name. I'll invite you into seeing the world in a whole new light. And then I will rejoice. And so will God. And so will all of heaven. So come and follow me. Now maybe you're here today or you're watching online and you feel out of place. Like, I don't, I don't really know any of these songs. I don't know a whole lot of these people. I don't really understand how this whole, like, church thing works. But let me tell you today, it, it doesn't matter. Because we see you, and Jesus sees you. Jesus doesn't care if you know these songs or not. It says he will put a new song in your mouth. He doesn't care if you know these scriptures or not. It says that he will write his words upon your heart. He just wants you. He knows that you are lost. And he says, today salvation has come. For I have come to seek and to save the lost. So just ask him and just say, Jesus, I, I want to repent. Show me that, that new way of life because this way that I'm living life isn't working anymore. And he will rejoice and he will party and then he will begin that work in you. And he will finish it. Now, so what? There are three questions and it wants us to process through today in light of these parables. First is that who are today's sinners? Now, I'm not talking about those who are breaking the quote-unquote so-called rules. If we start judging by rules, then we're no better than the Pharisees were. I'm talking about those who don't understand that they are lost, not the righteous that don't need saved. Who are those that because 
they are, have so much junk happening in their lives that they're wandering. They're getting lost in the wilderness. Who are those that have no idea of their worth because society has told them that they are worthless and not welcome? Or more to the point that even sometimes the church has told them that they're worthless or not welcome. Who are those people? Because those are the people that Jesus welcomed at his table and they are the same people that we should welcome at ours. We should be going and continue to go to places that religious society or others have given up on and rejected and set a table. Should be on the front lines to help close the gap and feed those who are hungry, clothe those who are naked, visit those in prison so that the good news that they are worth being seen and known and found in Jesus can be heard and understood. Now we can, we can search high and low for finding, you know, like right baseball bat or, or dig in and try and figure out what our next Bible study should be. And neither of those things are, are wrong. But if we get so caught up in focusing on those things in our lives and miss the fact that there are people who are next to us, sometimes even living right next door, whose lives are so messed up that their kids don't even know where their next meal is going to come from, then our priorities might be a little out of sync with what God's heart is for the lost. So next question is, are you wandering? Can we just set aside our, our pride for a while and just admit that we wander? Can we admit that we can sometimes forget the way of life that Jesus taught us, that we can slip back into a, a performance, a rules-driven type of religion, that we have to do this and that to make sure that we look right and do the right thing so that Others think that we're in the right spot. Can we just admit that we all can and need to repent? We can just ask to be taught again the ways of life that Jesus wants to do within us so that we can then take up the cause of Christ to seek and to save the lost. And finally, what is your response? See, church, this is why the tax collectors, the sinners, were all gathered around to hear Jesus. And this is why we should, too, gather around and listen to what Jesus has to say to you, that you are worthy, you are seen, you are loved, you are enough, and that you can find true life through him. And then where are the lost who has Holy Spirit told you to leave the 99 and chase or to light the lamp and to dig and to look for? So let's, let's repent. Let's go and find them. Let's sweep the floor. Let's brave the wilderness. And then let's celebrate with the heavens when the lost are found. Let's pray together. Father, we want to find ourselves in a place of true repentance, a true understanding of what you have called us to as followers of you, that it is our, our mandate, our, our goal in life should be continue to seek and seek after those who are lost, to help find those who are wandering in the deserts or those that society has cast aside and forgotten that those are the spaces that we are to step into, 
the places that are hard, that are difficult, and to create and to set a table, whether that's in our homes, whether it's in our minds, it's in our, our conversations, to be able to set a place for people to understand that they are loved and valued and they're seen and known and that they can have life and life to the full in and through you, Lord Jesus. Allow us to partner along with you in that way. We know that Holy Spirit, you're the, one, you're the only one that saves and brings people fully to yourself, but God, you invite us into that process. We create the space, set the table, have the conversations, and then God, watch you work. And so Father, I'm praying in, in faith for a great harvest, a great, just understanding great number of people who would just come to know you so that we can celebrate along with you those who were lost and who are now found. We pray this all in your name. And everyone said, Amen. amen.